Our God and Father, we're grateful for your love and your kindness to us. God, that you would allow us to grow up in a country where there's a church on every street corner, a Bible in every house, a gospel preacher nearby. We thank you for your gracious providence that you have even called us to yourself and drawn us. God, that you have regenerated our hearts by your Holy Spirit and that you have saved us from darkness, from sin, from death and rescued us and brought us into the kingdom of your dear Son. We honor you and we praise you and we thank you. I pray today, Father, as we look into some of these complex eschatology issues, that you would help us to grasp the general categories, help us to grasp the clear teaching of Scripture. And Father, we, uh, we just ask that you would give us understanding and help us to be faithful to proclaim the full gospel to those that we minister to. We thank you for this time that we have, the freedom that we have to gather here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to hit the button here. Okay. So, uh, we've been talking about the gospel of the kingdom, and we've been talking about the fact that the gospel is one gospel but has many forms. And one of the forms of the gospel is, is that the gospel proclaims to us the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is expressed in the New Testament in three basic ways, right? And so those three ways are, number one, the kingdom of God is typically and normally speaking about the rule of God or the righteous reign of God. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about that realm that's under his rule. Well, it's also expressed in the New Testament as a present reality that we may enter into. And of course, this has been the subject of our teaching for the last two weeks. Uh, on your handout there, page 77, the kingdom of God is God's reign. Number two, it is a present realm into which we may now enter and experience the blessings of his reign. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about coming into the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about entering into the kingdom of God. Uh, we talk about now, right now, by faith and repentance in Christ, I'm sorry, by repentance of sins and faith in Christ, we now enter into the kingdom of God. And so we voluntarily come under the rule of God when we believe the gospel. Well, there's a third way that the kingdom is expressed in the New Testament, and that is that the kingdom is yet to come. And so Jesus would talk at times about the fact that the kingdom was at hand, which is a present reality, but then he would also talk about the kingdom in its, in its climax. He would talk about the kingdom in its full state, when it would come in all of its glory, and, and that uh, the, the earthly reign of God would now be established. And, uh, and so the kingdom would use terms like, when the, Jesus would use terms like, when the kingdom of God comes, Luke 22, 18. Um, and he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God in the future tense. And so, so you have to understand these tenses in which the scripture uses the term the kingdom of God. But primarily it's speaking about the rule of God. And, and you'll remember how I was talking to you about the fact that the kingdom has these aspects of now but not yet. And so we've been looking at these timelines of history and... Um, and we, we've been talking about the fact that the kingdom has different stages of fulfillment in time and space. And so um, this is the thing that we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about these different stages of fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Because when you're preaching the gospel to people and you're talking to them about the second coming of Christ, you have to understand this is a subject that in the Bible there is a huge amount of scripture that talks about it. And it seems like most Christians that you talk to are really confused. Uh, so confused that, as I mentioned last week, they'll get to the point where they'll say, you know what, it's just all going to pan out. And so we call them pan-tribbers, right? 
And and so, you know, are you a pre-tribber, or are you a mid-tribber, or are you a post-tribber, or, or are you a pre-rather? And, and, and they, they'll say, no, I'm a pan-tribber. It's all going to pan out, right? And, and what are they saying? Well, they're saying, you know, all these arguments and things and scriptures are so complex, I just can't get my hands around it, okay? Well, I'm going to try to help you with that today. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, the point is, is that we're proclaiming a gospel of a soon-coming kingdom and a soon-coming king who's going to establish his earthly reign. And when he comes, he's going to put all rebels to flight. And so, in this sense, the gospel is a warning. It's a warning that the king is coming, right? And it's a warning that the king is also the judge. And he's going to judge men according to his righteousness and to their deeds. Which means they're all in big trouble. Amen? And so that's why we preach uh, the cross and we preach the redemption that God has reconciled us to himself now by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. And that we've seen in the scripture and we'll be talking more about that in the, in the weeks to come. So I, I just want to say a couple things before I dive off into this. We're going to be starting on page 79 where it says the second coming of Christ. We're going to be talking about this topic. But the first thing is... This, your position on eschatology is not a test for orthodoxy. You understand what I'm saying? So what we mean by that is, you might be an amillennialist or you might be a premillennialist, okay? But both of those uh, positions can be held and still be an orthodox Christian believer and, and hold to the essentials of the historic Christian faith. You understand? When I say orthodox, I mean you hold to the essentials of the historic Christian faith, which are effectively the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Okay? So regardless of what you believe about end-time events, for the most part, okay, you can still live in that camp of orthodoxy. Okay? Um, now some would argue that the idea of the eternal state, what is it like, is an essential matter. I would agree that you know, we believe in a personal bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as all premillennialists do and as all amillennialists do. Okay? So, so that doesn't, an amillennialist or a premillennialist is not outside of that part of orthodoxy. Furthermore, we affirm the doctrine of hell. Okay? And so this is another essential of the historic Christian faith. As soon as you throw that out the window, the authority of Scripture goes out with it. Okay? And so, <clears throat> of course, the authority of Scripture is an essential of the historic Christian faith. So, what I'm saying is, whatever position you hear me saying, okay, and all my cards are on the table, family, okay, I have a website, all my charts, everything's there, okay, um, whatever you hear me saying, don't think I'm a heretic because I disagree with you about some fine point about eschatology, okay? It's not a test for orthodoxy. However, my, my approach in teaching eschatology is not to come in here and argue my position. It's to give you as much information so that you are as well informed as possible according to what the scripture says and what the different positions are so that you can make an informed understanding and decision as you're led by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's why you don't hear me come in here and argue all the time for historic millennialism. I'm not doing uh, uh, historic premillennialism. I'm not doing that. I'm not arguing my position, okay? Here we're talking about <clears throat> the gospel and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to give you some fundamental elements that need to be in your understanding so that when you're preaching the gospel, you've got some answers about the main, basic, clear things that the Bible teaches about eschatology, okay? Now, <clears throat> I am teaching from a premillennial perspective. And so we're probably all in that camp. I'm not aware of anybody that's outside of that camp here. If there is somebody, bear with me. Feel free to engage me outside of the class. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about it. But I am approaching these things from a premillennial perspective. Now, I gave you a handout today, <clears throat> and I want to make this point clear, because this is often confusing, and I've noticed from different comments from different people in the class that they don't necessarily understand a very important distinction that we need to make. This chart is on the back of your page 81 handout. See that? 
Okay? So what is pictured here is two different discussions. The one at the top is premillennialism and the timing of the rapture. So that deals with are you a pre-tribber, are you a mid-tribber, or are you a post-tribber? Okay? Those are arguments within the camp of premillennialism. Does that make sense? And it deals with when does the rapture happen in, re in regard to the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period. You see that? That is an entirely different discussion from the discussion that's pictured down below. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Okay? This top discussion is a discussion within premillennialism. The bottom discussion is a discussion about where you are in regard to whether or not there even is a millennium. Okay? So, like right here, okay, this is a premillennial view. Pre or post, actually, right here. All right? Now, if we add right here that Christ returns before the millennium, now this is premillennialism. Okay? If we get that and we erase it and we put it over here, this is postmillennialism. If Christ returns here at the end of the millennium, that's postmillennialism. Okay? I'm talking about this bottom discussion here. Everybody following me? Okay. So then, the other position is amillennialism. That's a picture of amillennialism. Ah means no. There is no millennium. So the, the, your natural question is, well, what about the thousand years in Revelation 20, right? The answer for an amillennialist is, it's an allegorical representation of a long period of time which is equivalent to the church age. And the church age happens between the cross and the eternal state, and the consummation of the ages happens here along with the return of Christ and the rapture and the whole shooting match. And you just enter into the eternal state. There's no millennial rule of Christ. That's amillennialism. Okay? You with me? Generally speaking, those are just, just a real broad brush about this argument about amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Everybody with me? That's an entirely different discussion from what's at the top of this page. That's an argument about premillennialism and the timing of the rapture. Okay? So when you hear me say premillennialism, don't get that confused with pre-tribulationalism, okay? Because that's talking about uh, Christ returning before the tribulation period, okay? So what happens there is, in premillennialism, you've got premillennialism. So we have a thousand years of Christ's earthly reign here. Right before Christ returns at the second coming and establishes his kingdom, you have what's either a seven-year or a 3.5-year, or some believe that this is undefined in the scripture, a period of what we call the tribulation. Seven-year period, right before the return of Christ. Okay, So there's an argument about when does the rapture happen. Does it happen before the tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation or does it happen at the end of the tribulation? Okay? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. There's also another position in post-tribulationalism called pre-wrath, which means that really in the pre-wrath position it kind of happens a little ways back here, like right here instead. And there's a little period of wrath right here. And so the rapture happens before the wrath of God. Okay? That's pre-wrath. Okay? So, this is pictured in this top discussion. Okay, now, is everybody with me? Yes. Got that? Okay, all right. Praise God. Okay. So, having said that, okay, let's, let's go through this lesson on the gospel and the second coming of Christ. An essential element of the gospel is that we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and King. We warn mankind to come voluntarily under his authority and rule before it is too late and they die in their rebellion against him and face him in judgment. Or he returns to establish his kingdom and they are found in their rebellion against him and then face him in judgment. 
We call mankind to repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus in order to flee from the coming wrath. In this sense, family, the gospel is a warning. We're calling men to repentance from sin because Jesus the King is coming and when he gets here, he's not going to tolerate sin. He's going to destroy sinners. Okay? In this sense, the gospel is a warning. And it's not a warning about God's love. Okay? It's a warning about God's wrath. And God is livid about sin. And when he shows up, the, all the world is going to see just how livid God is. Okay? And, you know, all this patience that God's had for thousands of years, it's going to run out. Okay? And the gospel is a warning about this coming wrath of God. And it's an invitation to the grace and the mercy of God. It's an invitation to the love of God, yes, but it is also a warning. Okay? And that's why we call mankind to repentance. Because in his sin, he's rebelling against the great king. And he's in big trouble. He needs to turn from his sin and be saved. And that happens through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so, when Christ returns, there will be several tasks at hand that he will accomplish. I have put them into four categories here for the sake of brevity. The warning that we give in the gospel embodies... These inevitable and unavoidable events to come upon the entire world. Okay? So the point of today's lesson is embodied in these four bullets that are right there on on page 79. Okay? These are general categories of which we all agree are going to take place at the second coming of Christ. Okay? Now that is if you're a premillennialist. And that's why I told you I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this forward as a premillennialist. Because an amillennialist would not agree on the section about the establishment of an earthly kingdom. Okay? However, the Bible clearly teaches that there will be the establishment of an earthly kingdom, and we're going to talk about that. But the point is just that the point of this lesson is for you as a gospel minister to have these categories in your mind so that when people have questions about what's happening when Jesus returns, you can answer. Okay? Here's what happens. He rescues his people. He resurrects them, the church of old, from the dead. And whoever's a a Christian living at that time is going to be raptured in the sky and transformed into with a glorious heavenly body. Amen? Number two, he's going to destroy the earthly authorities. He's going to arrest them. And when he does that, he's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth, which is going to be a kingdom of peace that goes on for a thousand years, at which time there'll be a rebellion, but after that, we enter into the eternal state, which of course will be the eternal, perpetual kingdom of God, where there will be no sin forevermore. Okay? Those are just basic general categories that we as gospel ministers need to be able to com- communicate to people. The Bible says tons about this. Okay? Not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. Right? Okay, so... <clears throat> I'm hoping that you'll get a grasp on these general categories and so that you don't have to be a, a pan-tribber <laughs> in regard to everything that's happening at the second coming. Okay, Maybe you don't really know if it's a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, but you can know the other things that are clear in Scripture of which we can see clearly. Jesus is coming again. He's going to establish a kingdom. right? There's going to be a tremendous persecution right before he comes. Then when he establishes his kingdom, it's going to be a kingdom of peace, right? And that at the end of that, there's going to be a consummation of the ages when God judges all of mankind and he creates a new heavens and a new earth. Amen? Those are things we need to know about, right? We promise people eternal life in the gospel, but we don't know when that's going to happen? Sure we do. We know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen just like the Bible tells us it's going to happen. So, I'm hoping we can get a handle on these general categories. So, let's talk about the first one, rescue and resurrection, okay? This is the first order of business when Christ returns. In the course of this gospel age, there will come a time of terrible tribulation on the earth unlike any other time before it. 
Christ will cut short the time of the tribulation on earth in order to rescue his people from the greatest persecution ever to come upon them by the hands of the Antichrist. Now, this is a, this is a position that is unique to me, okay? And if you don't hold to historic premillennialism, you might disagree with me on this, okay? But I'm reading right out of Matthew 24:21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so Christ comes. He cuts short the days of tribulation, which are coming upon the whole world uh, related to the rise of the Antichrist to power. You see, this guy is going to be a devil incarnate. A devil incarnate. Okay, if you will. And uh, he is going to cause, as it says in the words of Daniel, astounding devastation and succeed at whatever he does. Or in the words of Daniel 7, that he is uh, going to uh, make war against the saints and try to wear them down. We'll look at some of these scriptures. But Antichrist is going to cause a tremendous tribulation and he is going to persecute the church this first section of revelation 13 gives very clear instruction about that then he goes on to establish a world system we call it the mark of the beast right and under the mark of the beast he's causing people to be killed all over the face of the world who don't do what bow down and worship the image that he's established okay it's revelation 13 the parallel to Revelation 13 is Daniel 7, vision of Daniel 7, okay? So, the <clears throat> um, fact of the matter is, there's going to be a time of tribulation that comes about in this gospel age, okay? And no matter if you're a pre-tribber or a post-tribber, you believe that. You believe there's going to be a time of tribulation. Why? Because that's the clear teaching of Jesus. It's the clear teaching of Paul. It's the clear teaching of the prophets, okay? So, when this time of tribulation happens... Okay, Christ is going to rescue his people. Whether you're a pre-tribber or a mid-tribber or, or a post-tribber, you believe Christ is going to come and rescue you from that time. Okay, And when he rescues you, that event in the New Testament we call the rapture. Okay, Now, the word rapture doesn't appear in Scripture, but the word that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, which says we will be caught up to meet him in the air, the Latin translation of that word is rapturos. Okay? So that's where we get the term rapture. And so that event in Scripture where Christ catches up the living believers into the air, right? So shall we be with the Lord forever. The dead in Christ shall rise first, right? Um, that, that event we call the rapture, okay? If you don't want to call it that, fine. You can call it the first resurrection. Um, but let's look at some scriptures that talk about this. When this rescue takes place, the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and the church will be caught up in the air to meet Christ and to stand with him in glory as he puts all of his enemies under his feet and establish his reign as king. This is the first resurrection. Now I'm going to read you some rapture passages, but I want you to bear in mind that these coincide with the same events that are happening in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Okay? Now, <clears throat> at this point, I want you to get your chart out. This chart right here. And it says, The kingdom of God, stages of consummation 2. See that? Now, notice that the four bullet points that I have on the outline, rescue and resurrection, destruction of evil authorities, establishment of the earthly kingdom, those are pictured in these four boxes across the top. You see that? So as we talk about these events and we look at these scriptures, I want you to keep referring to this chart. And you'll see how these things are coming about in time and space. Everybody with me? Okay, all right. So, uh, these rapture passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. Okay? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? First Thessalonians. Then also, I believe the parallel scripture in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, And so here you see Christ returning in power and glory and gathering his elect. Okay, And uh, 1 Corinthians 15, familiar passage in the writing of Paul talking about the resurrection. And there he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what's Paul's point? Well, he's saying, look, we're not all going to die. Right? Instead, what? We shall all be changed. So what he's saying is, those of us who do do not die at this point in history, when there's a resurrection, okay, are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, he says. And this is the rapture. This is the first resurrection. This is what he meant when he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay. So, there are more passages about this in the scripture. Those are just for the sake of our discussion here about what's happening at the second coming of Christ. So the first order of business, when Christ comes, he's going to rescue his people from the tribulation and he is going to resurrect them. This is the first resurrection. And as it says in Revelation verses 20, verses 4 through 6, blessed are they who take part in the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power. You know what that means? It means once you're raised imperishable and immortal, you shall never die. And that's what Paul means when he says, this mortal shall put on immortality. What does immortality mean? It means you can never die. Okay? And so what's happening is when Christ returns, he's coming for his own. He's going to save them by a resurrection. And we're going to put on glorified bodies, and we will be with Christ forever from that point forward. Amen? Okay. And see, these are things we all agree on. These things are crystal clear in the scripture. Are you with me? Okay. Destruction of evil authorities. Okay, now, when Christ comes, he's going to rescue his people, okay, and then he's going to destroy the wicked. Okay? Now, there's an argument between pre-tribbers and post-tribbers that, uh, about the idea of Christ coming with his church or coming for his church, right? Well, in either position, there's an answer for that. But the point is, is just that when Christ comes, he's going to come, as Jude says, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Okay? And so he will be coming with the church. Okay? Regardless of your position in pre-trib or post-trib. And when he comes with the church, he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. And the second coming of Christ is pictured in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Okay, And there we see the vision of Christ on a white horse. And he comes, he says, come and gather for the great supper of the Lamb. Right? We're going to feast on the flesh of kings, it says. All right? And what's it talking about? It's talking about the fact that he's going to arrest every kingly authority on the earth. And at that same point, uh, point in Scripture, verses uh, 19 through 21, he destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they get thrown in the lake of fire. Okay? That parallels a passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says that uh, he's going, Christ is going to destroy the Antichrist by the brightness of his coming. Okay? And so when he comes, 
he is going to arrest these uh, earthly authorities, okay? Antichrist, demons, okay? And, and all wicked kings on the earth at that time. Okay, he's going to arrest them all. And many of them he's going to destroy. The Antichrist and the false prophet, for sure, they're going to get tossed in the lake of fire. Okay, now this is before the millennium. This happens in Revelation 19 at the second coming of Christ. So, what's happening here is, right before the millennium when Christ returns and there's this period of wrath that he pours out on the wicked, okay, he's also destroying the Antichrist here. So, Antichrist and false prophet are destroyed before the millennium begins. Okay? Alright, so, destruction of evil authorities. When Christ returns to rescue and resurrect his people, he will then swiftly destroy the Antichrist and arrest every earthly authority. Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, that is Christ, who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast, that is the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay? Of course, highly symbolic language about what's happening when Christ comes. He's going to slay the wicked kings with the breath of his mouth. Okay? You understand what that means? When Jesus wants to defeat his enemies, he says, defeat, and it's done. Got it? He's the almighty God. Right? Okay, so, Daniel 7.25 speaks of this time when Jesus will uh, arrest the Antichrist and take away his authority. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, And he, that is the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You know how long that is? That's three and a half years. A time, time, and half a time. So look what it's saying. The Antichrist is going to speak out against the Most High. He's going to wear down the saints. He's going to try to change the laws. And this, uh, it will be given into his hand for a time, time, and half a time. Now, if you look at Revelation 13, verse 7, that's exactly what it says. It says, He was given power for 42 months to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That's what it says in Revelation 13, 7. Okay? This is the very thing that Daniel is speaking about. This time, time, and half a time, three and a half years, that's 42 months. Okay? Now, if you're a pre-tribber, you believe those saints are what we call the tribulation saints. They're people that are alive in the tribulation who believe on Christ um, <clears throat> and, and are converted. Uh, however, they are left there after the rapture, and so they're enduring this great persecution under the hands of Antichrist. Did I represent that right for you pre-tribbers? Okay, and then um, if you're a post-tribber, then you simply believe that's the church in whole and at large who is underneath the persecution of the Antichrist. Either way, okay, when Christ comes, verse 26 of Daniel 7, but the court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Isn't that what it says in Revelation 19:21? That Antichrist is going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever, right? Look what it says in verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. You get that? So here's what Daniel 7, 25 through 27 is saying. There's going to be a time of tribulation. When that happens, Antichrist is going to be given power by God to do his thing. When he's doing his thing, Christ is going to return and arrest him and destroy him and annihilate him forever and then hand over his dominion to who? The saints. The saints of the highest one. And they shall rule and reign with him forever and ever. 
You with me? And so this idea of the saints ruling with Christ is pictured again in the, in the passage just after that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. So, evil will be brought under control on the face of the earth at the hand of Jesus the King and be brought under the rule of the kingdom of God. Okay? For instance, Isaiah 2 puts it like this. Now it will come about in that day, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Now, do you know what the mountain of the house of the Lord is? Anybody? Zion, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, right? Okay, all right. And so he goes on. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his, way, in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn for war. And the, part here, the point here is that during this millennial kingdom, this is going to be a time of great peace. The prophets have spoke of this in many different prophets in many different places where they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. You know what that means? They're going to quit fighting and they're going to start growing. So that means everybody gets to eat and nobody gets hurt. Amen? That's what it's going to be like when Jesus is ruling. Okay? Now, you have a little picture of the prophetic perspective for those of you who asked about the very last part of that verse. And never again will they learn for war. Well, you understand that right here at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a final rebellion. So how could that be speaking about the millennial period? Okay? Here's where we have a picture of the prophetic perspective. Okay? Remember I always tell you about when you, tell, you have these apocalyptic visions and prophecy that they speak of events that happen in time and space and have many fulfillments through the course of history so that they could make one statement that talks about three different events happening with hundreds or thousands of years in between them. You understand? Because in this picture of the uh, millennial kingdom in Isaiah where many nations are going to stream to the house of the Lord, um, you also have a statement made about the eternal state where never again will they train for war, okay? I could show you 25 examples of this in the prophets, okay, where even ones that have already been fulfilled, where the scripture will make a statement and it will have within it various things that get fulfilled throughout the course of history, but it's all happening in one little passage of scripture, okay? Is that enough to confuse everybody thoroughly? <laughs> if you study prophecy, it's something you have to wrestle with all the time, Okay? Because the scripture is speaking from outside of time and space, okay? And so it, it, it's, it's, it's got this transcendent theme in it that's, that's beyond what's happening in the course of time necessarily, okay? So uh, that's an important issue. But the, the fact of the matter is, when Jesus comes, he's going to rescue his people by a resurrection. And when he does that, the next order of business is to arrest the earthly authorities, including the Antichrist and the false prophet, and destroy them forever. At that time, number three, he will establish his earthly kingdom. At this time, Christ will establish his rule upon the earth. His long-awaited government will be established. His rule will be sovereign and will never be destroyed. It will be everlasting. For instance, in the vision in Daniel 2, and toward the end of that, uh, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. forever. Okay? And then also in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay? Now this is the same vision that the angel interprets for Daniel where we read about Christ destroying the Antichrist and giving this sovereignty to the saints. 
Okay? You with me? Same vision in Daniel 7. Jesus is pictured as one like a son of man, coming on the clouds in great glory, and he's given a dominion and a kingdom which will never end. Okay? That's when this is going to happen right here, family. When Christ comes to establish his kingdom. When Christ returns again, he's coming as a conquering king. Okay? Whether you're a premillennialist or an amillennialist, you believe that. Okay? And when he comes, he's going to be given a dominion that will never end. Okay? Okay. He and his saints, the church of all time, will rule over the nations and there will be no war. And the world will enjoy a time of great peace, as it says in Psalm 22. And the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. You understand? He rules over the nations. And they will all worship him. How many of them? All the families of the nations will worship before thee. Okay? How about Zechariah 14? Then it will come about <clears throat> that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem to go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booze. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, there, there no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague which with the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze. You understand, during this time there's disobedience. There's disobedience by the nations during this time. That's why it's happening here during the millennium and not in the eternal state. Because there won't be any sin in the eternal state. But during this time of Christ's earthly rule, when he's in Jerusalem and they're all going up to celebrate the feast of booze, if they don't go, guess what? <clears throat> King's upset. He wants to know why the family of Egypt didn't show up to pay him homage. <laughs> right? So what does he do? Well, he withholds rain from their land. It's discipline, discipline from the Almighty God who's sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. Okay? You see that? It's right here in the scripture. Whichever of the families does not go up to Jerusalem to, the, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Verse 19. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Okay? And then again there, the scripture in Daniel, that the saints will rule and reign with Christ. Or how about Revelation 5.10? Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Okay? Many would argue that that reign is something that's happening now. I would like to argue that when that reign comes to pass, it's going to be real. And saints are going to be ruling people on the earth. Okay? You examine all the scriptures on this, it becomes very clear. This time period of a thousand years is commonly called the millennium. There is much controversy concerning the nature and circumstances of this time. Okay? So, so far, we have Christ is coming. He's going to rescue and resurrect his people. When he comes, he's going to destroy the earthly authorities. He's going to arrest and destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth in Jerusalem and set up his throne there. He is going to have a time of a thousand years of peace on the earth. Okay, we're going to see this in these scriptures we read now. But the point is, is that um, um, these three things have happened. He's rescued his people, he's destroyed the earthly authorities, he's established his earthly kingdom, and then at the end of that time, the scripture speaks of the consummation of the ages. Okay? And so this is primarily the passage in Revelation 20, but let's talk about it. Toward the end of the millennium, there will be a final rebellion against Christ by the nations of mankind, at which time he will destroy them forever along with Satan. This will be the final doom of Satan and all the wicked, and the reign of sin and death upon the earth will be brought to a close by God's power. Revelation verses 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are completed, okay, look, got your chart? Thousand years, when they're completed, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up across the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? So one thing we see that there's a chronology here between what's happening in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20. How do we know that? Well, in 19, the beast and the false prophet got thrown into the lake of fire. When we get to 20, and, and uh, Satan is released and then uh, destroyed by Christ, at the end of that time, he says, I'm going to throw him in the lake of fire where I already threw the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist. See that? So, <clears throat> uh, what happens here then is the devil is destroyed. You with me? You got your chart there? I want to show you something glorious. Look at this little box in the bottom right here. At the consummation of the ages, we're going to have the final rebellion. But when that happens, Christ is going to destroy Satan and death and hell forever. Right? Which is what he says in first, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says the last enemy to be destroyed is going to be what? Death. The last enemy to be destroyed is going to be death. Okay? This is what happens right here. He says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever. So uh, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Look at uh, chapter uh, 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? Family, we call this the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, all the wicked of all the ages are resurrected to stand before God in judgment. And when they get judged, if their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? That's the word of the Lord. That's what we're warning people about. At the same time, God destroys death forever. Okay? It says here, that death and hell, death and Hades, same thing. Hades and hell is the same thing in the New Testament. Death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? They're destroyed forever. And that is the fulfillment of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That happens right here at the consummation of the ages at the great white throne judgment. And that's why it says in this box right here, the destruction of death and hell... The great white throne, judgment of the wicked dead. Okay? At that point in time and space, all of the wicked have been judged and banished from the presence of God forever. The Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, along with Satan, have been destroyed. And what does that leave? Okay? Earth and heaven have fled away from the presence of God. Right? And then we read the glorious words of Revelation 21.1. Right? What's it say there? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Amen? 
You get the picture here? Now the eternal state is ushered in after the great white throne judgment. And there'll no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or dying or crying or pain for the old order of things. That order where things decay and die and hurt, that's going to pass away. And the kingdom of God is going to be perpetuated for the, for the rest of eternity, world without end. You know who's going to be there? People who repent of their sins and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? You with me? In this eternal state, God's people will lie down in peace, never again to know any curse or pain. God will dwell among his people forever and ever, and they will forever enjoy the happiness and satisfaction they were created for in its fullest capacity. Revelation 22, 3 and 5, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of a light or of a lamp or or light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. The coming ages will hold out one glorious revelation of the kindness of God after another, and all our capacities to appreciate and worship God in all of his glory will be utterly fulfilled. The gospel promise of eternal life will be fulfilled in a perpetual state of experiencing the lavish blessings of the eternal God forever and ever. Can I get a witness? And so it says in Ephesians 2, 5 through 9, And when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God our Father, Lord, these things are beyond our comprehension, God. I pray that you would encourage us, God, to share these things with others. God, that we would be people that not only tell people about the salvation of Christ, but warn them against your coming wrath and warn them that your kingdom is coming to be established upon the earth. And God, that we might encourage people to come voluntarily under your rule, that they might experience the promise of eternal life and eternal blessing in your kingdom, God. May we find words and ways to describe what it will be like in the glory of your heaven forever and ever and ever. And this light and momentary affliction that we endure here is so short. It's such a minuscule period of time, God. Give us eternal eyes. Give us a perspective, God, that we might have compassion upon people and tell them how they can be saved and come and surrender to Christ Jesus the King. Give us boldness, God. Give us understanding and give us a zeal for your house. Give us a zeal for your holiness. Give us hearts of compassion that are filled with your love. And God, I just pray that, uh, that we, your people, God, would walk in the light of these truths. That, God, these would be the things that consume our daily lives. That we would be true and faithful gospel ministers, God. Time is short. I pray, O God, that you'd work in us, your people, to do your work, to do your will, to make disciples and to preach your gospel to every creature under heaven. We thank you for your love and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.